Shall we get started? You guys having a good spring? Enjoying that weather out there? Got some neat colors going on. It's got green and blue and yellow and pink and black. Red. Pink back there. And Frida is great today. You're usually bright. <laughs> uh, well, we're in uh, we're in Acts. That's nothing new, is it? <laughs> Acts 21. Again, we're in Acts. We're um, approaching. Uh, Another narrative story, and that's what we really have been doing with all these studies have been narrative passages. You read it and we see these historical facts, but you know we want to reach down a little further and uh, see the principles that are uh, underneath this uh, narrative and the qualities, the spiritual truths that are there. And of course, you know what we see on the surface, we know that there's a, God's word always has depth. And, of course, when we see these, we see Paul actually dominates these passages, doesn't he? Um, Where we picked up on Paul, he's pretty well the one that we see most of the time all the way through the rest of the book. So he dominates the passage. And in that, you know, we see a lot of characteristics of Paul. And uh, he's a good example to follow as um, we see that. So it's no different than uh, other passages in that sense. Uh, we know we've been heading towards Jerusalem if we're following along with, with Paul here, and that's to give the money to the poor in Jerusalem and then also, as a result of that, to uh, introduce to the Jews the, the Gentiles. And, of course, Gentiles are the ones giving this money for the most part. But um, there will be some Gentiles that are following along with him as they go into very Jewish Jerusalem. That's where he's heading. It's this is really the last leg of his journey, and uh, that's um, that's pretty vital. Um, as he kind of looks out up over the hill, and he can look down into the valley, and then all of a sudden see this stretch, and it's about like uh, 60 miles somewhere around there, 64 miles, uh, is his destiny in Jerusalem, where he uh, last left off, where we were at last uh, last week, as he's heading to go there. And um, that's where we're at. We'll uh, be picking it up somewhere around verse 15, 16, and uh, take it through about 26. Since I don't have the outlines, I'll try to get back to doing that again. Uh, it's been kind of hectic, and we'll put that down. I was doing good to get all the this together. And I, went, uh, I don't have time. I ran out. So, But they're always helpful if you have them in front of you, the scriptures that we go to and such. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for this beautiful, gorgeous day you've given us. Thank you for every day that you give us. We don't deserve any day, but uh, be able to see a little bit of a uh, a glimpse of your glory through creation. We know we see your beauty in in all things of creation. It reflects uh, the Maker. And uh, you certainly are uh, amazing as we look at creation and then even in the fact that there it's been tainted because of man's sin we know all of creation groans for you to uh, come back and uh, to get back into that glorious position that uh, creation was 
but uh, despite that, Lord, we uh, we we look at just uh, absolute beauty, and um, as we look at your word, that is truly where beauty is at. It is you. And may we gain further insight as Paul travels along, as he travels to a place that he knows that uh, is going to cause uh, difficult circumstances as he arrives. And uh, we look at this, we pray that we can uh, draw out some principles for our own lives that uh, can help build our character and edify us. And it's all for your glory, Lord. That's why we're here. In your Son's name, amen. Um, we pick it up, um, verse 15, chapter 21. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. There's the ascension. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Mason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this, that we tell you we have four men who are under a vow. Take them, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads, and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So, Paul and all the people that are with him, they're getting into uh, Jerusalem, coming from their last place, Caesarea. And some of the disciples, some of the followers, are from Caesarea. We noticed that last week, right? They're actually from there. And they also came with us, taking us to Mason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. So he's brought uh, to this home of Mason and Gentiles that are going along with him. I find that rather fascinating. You're going to a Jewish city. There are many Jewish Christians there. But you have a lot of Gentiles with you, and you have to wonder how welcome you're going to be even amongst the Jewish Christians. They're still having a, a problem with uh, the, uh, the Greeks. But uh, this guy, Mason, is a Jewish Christian, but he's what you would call maybe a, a liberal in, in some senses. 
and not as far as the Word of God is concerned, but as far as some of the legalities or, or being a straight Jew. He was from Cyprus. Um, he was a Hellenistic Jew. Now that means, and we know that Hellenist simply means Greek or Gentile. And that's what we've been running into uh, quite frequently. And I think we see that word uh, that dealing with the Hellenist. So he's raised from Cyprus. That's a Greek country. And he had a Greek name. So he's very Greekish. And so it's at least part of the reason why whenever Paul goes into Jerusalem, they have it arranged for Paul and his friends to stay there. That's probably pretty wise. How many other Jewish Christians would be taking in Paul and all these Gentiles that are following him along? So that's pretty significant. Mason is going to take him in and a whole pile of Gentiles coming in. (laughs) Imagine that. So you have very Jewish Jews who live in Jerusalem and they're very oriented still yet to the Mosaic ceremony. Uh, They haven't um, really parted uh, ways from many of those ceremonies. So this guy would be a, what you could say would be a, a liberal Hellenistic Jew who was who was willing to take them in. Pretty pretty brave there. And it says that uh, he, this Mason, is a disciple of long standing. Some translations and uh, the language I think uh, points to being an early disciple. We don't know how early, but it has certainly been a significant time period that Mason here, this Jewish Christian who's very Gentile, um, we don't know, but who knows? He could go all the way back to the beginnings of the church or close thereof. Long standing. And he might have been a really good source maybe for Luke. Just trying to put some thoughts there, try to make this guy come alive a little bit. You know, I, I'm sure Luke, whenever he would run into certain people that have been Christians for a long time, he would probably get an interview from them. Maybe uh, between what he uh, got in his interviews and the Holy Spirit inspiring him, Luke was able to put down some uh, important facts. And uh, of course, Holy Scripture, really what it comes down to be. But uh, he would he would get. Uh, some sources. Uh, of course, I think Mark would have been one, and of course Peter and uh, whoever else he would have ran into. Uh, so Luke is in town. He's in Jerusalem and uh, some of the other guys. And so we see this scene and the Apostle Paul's arriving at somewhere around the Feast of Pentecost. Penta means 50. That's 50 days after the Passover. He originally wanted to be there to Passover, but we see that now it looks like um, he, of course, he missed that. We know that. But now he's coming there at Pentecost. Now there are going to be a lot of people in town. That first Pentecost, um, people came from all over the known world and they spoke all sorts of different languages. Remember, that was in chapter 2. So they still uh, continued to do that. Why wouldn't they? so he, he wanted to be there at the time when all these people were in town. They congregate together. And, of course, it'd bring in a lot of uh, your, your Jewish Christians that were from other areas. Um, I, I think he wanted to be there because it was important to him. He, Paul is Jewish. He's a Christian, but he is Jewish. And 
um, it, it's a celebration of Judaism. Not saying that he's legally bound, and we're kind of getting into that night, uh, tonight a little bit. Um, it's, it's not that he's legally bound, but we know that he, um, he took Nazarite vow, for instance. Um, we know that there's certain holy days. Not that he's keeping them as a legalistic matter, as they did uh, before the time of Christ, but uh, he saw it as a, a great, great opportunity. Uh, and so, you know, this is an important time for him. It's all a part of his heritage. Just because he became a Christian doesn't mean that he loses all of his heritage and all the things that he grew up in. He just looks at it a little differently than he would have before, though. And he sees the fulfillment being Christ. Of course, in what's in Second Corinthians five, or First Corinthians five, uh, uh, Christ is our Passover. You know, he, he knew that. And of course, the Holy Spirit is representative of what happened at Pentecost and all the fulfillment of that. So Paul is not ignorant of those things. He taught the doctrine on much of that. Right. Right, makes that uh, Old Testament even come alive even more. So if we picture him coming in there, he's not going to be um, well liked, especially by the Jews. But the Jewish Christians have a big problem with him. They've been they've been uh, catechized by the Judaizers. And uh, this is not going to be a good thing when he comes into town. They're going to hear about it. And uh, we'll, we'll see that as this develops here. What you're going to see here, this is the last of the ministry of Paul as a free man. Because after... And we're heading to the arrest right here. And after that, we know that uh, that's pretty well what um, he winds up being. Ephesians 6.20. Uh, by the time he wrote that, he said... He was an ambassador in chains. And whether he is a prisoner or whether he is a, a missionary free to go wherever he wants, he gets his main emphasis out there. It's always the gospel. He's always doing that. And I don't think being a prisoner minimized his ministry at all. Uh, if anything, it maximized it because he was able to write some letters from the prisons. And, uh, of course, there were people who came to be believers as he was in prison, too. So it really doesn't reflect on the accomplishment of all the objectives that he had. God did his thing through him no matter where he's at. So he just continued to fulfill his ministry no matter what the situation, what circumstance. We may not ever see anything like what he's gone through but yet at the same time, we can think of some of our toughest circumstances, which probably can't compare with this, but you know, whatever we're going through, if we can take it as, you know, I, I want to continue and I want to fulfill the ministry that God has given me in whatever way that is, and, and here's, a, here's a hard um, thing I'm coming up against, but my main concern is, is God, right? He's what it's about. The uh, first thing that happens here, um, they're, as they're lodging, it says, After we arrived in Jerusalem in 17, the brethren received us gladly. Now, there you have the 
the Christians. I think this is probably some 25 years after the time of Christ now. You know, we've, we've gone pretty far on in, into the church, yeah, into that, that century. We're in the, in the 60s anyway, uh, A.D. And it says, the brethren there, some he knows, some he doesn't. And they're going to get together and he's going to be able to share where he's been. Remember, he is a missionary. He's a missionary at heart. And what do, what do missionaries do? Tell you about where they've traveled, what God has done, what what God has done through them, and how people came to the Lord because of that. So, following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So they're rejoicing, and you see the development of the church here all along. They're rejoicing. One thing for, well, he's he's bringing money to them. But it's not a selfish thing. It's because that money is going to be distributed to the, the people who need it. They're drastically bad. Oh, we can be a part of this and getting this out. And uh, by the way, you know, of course, the Gentiles are the one that brought that. So that's going to bring, uh, keep talking about it all the time, but uh, great joy in their hearts for the Gentile converts. And most of these guys now, as they get to the brethren, are these Jewish Christians that are living there in Jerusalem. So they're thrilled. Thrilled about the money. Thrilled to hear about the Gentile converts. Um, and to hear that a Gentile church all across the, the known world did this tremendous, tremendous act of love towards them, the church there and the, and the needy people. So, um, one day, the next day, he goes to James and all the elders. The elders were present. So near, now we, we have him going into... Uh, into the place of James. James happens to be the half-brother of the Lord. James has been there a long time. James is also known as Old Camelines. Prayed. He's, he's been leading the, ch- the church there, but the church has elders. And I think that's important. I think you see the development of the church quite a lot as we have moved through Acts now. And we've gotten a foundation. It first started out with Who? In leadership, the apostles, right? And that we think in Matthew and John and, of course, James. We know the story on some of those guys. And, and uh, Paul is one of those two, one on untimely born. Um, but the elders are along with James. James is not an apostle. Um, there are elders that are helping He's not the only leader there in Jerusalem. And I can't imagine it was only James, and it couldn't have been because they have elders. That had to be a huge church there. And you'll remember when it first started off. I mean, you're talking thousands the very first day, and then thousands more were added. And we know as time went on, they they had to have people leading. The apostles were doing it first, though. The people even came, I think, is, is it in Acts 4, where um, they brought their money and put the money at the apostles' feet. They were the leaders. And, um, and well, they should have been. So they carried on the administration of the church, and they made sure that that money was dispersed and went out to um, the people that uh, were in, in need. Uh, they administered all that. It's 
but it wasn't until the sixth chapter of Acts, church is moving on, all of a sudden there was a great need, especially the Gentile Christians out there. And um, so they had to pick... uh, some men full of faith, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit to take care of that business. They were called servants. They were called deacons. <clears throat> they, the diakonos there. So they took care of that. So you had those guys and they, they were helping. The apostles realized they couldn't do it by themselves. It was growing too rapidly. They needed help. So that's where the church expanded out as far as its leadership. Um, by the time you get to Acts 15, now this is just a few chapters back, <clears throat> Acts 15, verse 2. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. This was the the deal about circumcision. That was a big conflict there. They had their leadership already in place, uh, definitely by that time. Uh, That's the first council of the church. So you have apostles and elders. Apostles are still around. It's it's the first uh, century. And uh, they're right there in Jerusalem. And they had men who were elders or pastors or bishops, overseers, right? Shepherds. Um, so you have a, I think right there, you have a transition that, that was going on. First the apostles did everything, and then it got to where um, you have the elders, James and the elders here at this time. What happened to the apostles in Jerusalem? You think they, they were dead at this time? Not likely. They are doing mission work all over the known world. They're out of Jerusalem at this time. Now, it's not that they would maybe not come back. They probably did. But, hey, where is, um, uh, let's say, um, think of Matthew. Where's Matthew at? He's he's out and about. He's out of the office right now. And so are the other ones. They're doing what Paul had been doing. Now, we don't see that in Scripture. We basically get Paul's travels and then the things that were happening before Paul and whenever it was uh, Peter, but we don't get uh, Scripture. There there are some uh, uh, traditions and stories uh, that have been brought forth of where they might have gone and might have been doing. But uh, at this time, there's James, which Paul was familiar with. He had met him. Of course, that was at the council back a few years ago. The elders are there, and he'd probably met some of them. Uh, so you have the apostles. They're out preaching all over the place. And the leaders are all set. They have the pastors there. You know, let's think, we're just talking about this. How many more books could have been written? Or Acts Part 2, Acts Part 3, Acts Part 4, by some of the other apostles? Or some of the you know the other ones that had gone out and doing mission work, they're not there. So obviously God did not intend to put that in there. But there are other stories going on that are just as significant. This is significant because this is what God wanted for us to. Have. We would have 
probably so much information there that we'd never be able to read it all of all that was going on. Um, And this is what I find kind of fascinating to think about. What all was going on in the early church days? When you get to heaven, you're going to have an eternity to be able to talk to all the other Christians. Of course, being in the presence of the Lord is the best thing that we have. But, you know, we're going to be able to hear from the rest of the church all those years before us. (laughs) All the believers from Old Testament time all the way on up to our present time and however far it goes. Our time time, my time just about got away. (laughs) 24 minutes. But anyway, uh, wouldn't that be interesting to be able to just sit down and just talk to one of those guys at, uh, at one at a time and sit down with maybe Luke and then to say, well, I'm going to go over here. I've not heard anything about this. What was happening over in India? You know, what was going on over there? Uh, if there was anybody that went there. Um, tell me the story. Um, you know, that's going to take a, what would be a few centuries right there to be able to find out all the stuff that was going on. There's no time in, in, in eternity. But um, just think how much of a blessing that could be. Talk with God's people. Most of these people we never ever hear of. We we think of the apostles. We we know of some of them. Some of those apostles we don't even hardly know anything about. But they were doing their thing. But nothing's mentioned. But what about the people who aren't apostles? Just think about how God's using them. One of these days that we'll have some of that to be made known. And then, of course, in our time, all the people that we never hear a thing about, and uh, we'll get to be able to hear all this. You know, that's gonna if, if there was such a thing as time, that's going to take a lot of time just to learn some history. And when you see history, you're not getting hit just history, but really what you're doing is you're getting His story. You're really getting how God works. So you get to know Him better. This is eternal life that they may know Thee. It'll be eternity as we get to know Him more and more and it'll never, ever get boring. (laughs) We'll never run out of excitement. So, anyway, um, you know, you get to the epistles and after you get there, there's just not too much about the apostles. Uh, Paul, you know, you got Peter and he mentions Paul and but you don't hear anything about those guys, really. Uh, you don't hear much mention about the prophets. Uh, it talks about the gifts that are given, and that's very early. Uh, Corinthians was one of the first books, if not the first book written in the New Testament. I don't know for sure, but some say that uh, it might have been. Um, we do get something about the, uh, the the prophets there, the gifts that were given, but not a lot that is is mentioned. So you start with the apostles, ruling in Jerusalem. And then they raise up elders. And by that time, they go on out. And uh, maybe it's one by one. And maybe some of them stayed around for a while, but they, they go on. Uh, and now you have the church being ruled by elders. And if you have thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish Christians there, you better have a lot of elders. And who knows how many it could be. We don't know. We're not given any number. I'll just throw out, how about the number 100? How about 100 elders? 
I, I don't know. Huge church there. I'm sure they had houses all over the place where they met. And then, of course, we know that they they went to the temple on the Sabbath. They didn't quit doing that. Uh, but they they did meet, and of course we know that they met at, the, at first were uh, under the apostles' teaching, and they continued to be under the apostles' teaching as those letters and epistles started coming in. Maybe the elders weren't there. Um, Paul told Titus, "Ordain elders in every city." That's why a uh, uh, multiplicity of elders is a, a biblical thing. So we're watching a, a transition, a transitioning of the church, and it's taken this time, all this time up there to, to develop and occur. And um, so James is still there, and he's a spokesman for the elders. And so you have to have, even though you have a bunch of people, a bunch of elders, a bunch of leaders there, you still have to have one person that speaks for all of them. If you have them all speak at one time, you're going to have nothing but confusion. So he, he's, he's speaking here as he uh, did at the First Church Council. James is getting uh, rather elderly at this time. I don't know um, if it's, let's see, it's in the 60s there, and we know he was born after Jesus, of course. Um, he could be close to, to 60 or in his 50s. I called him elderly, didn't I? Well, he's not quite elderly yet. <laughs> well, um, I'm sure it was a great reception. I'm sure they were glad to see Paul. I'm sure they were glad to, to uh, be able to hear what was going on. And he's, he gave particulars about what God had done. Uh, here it is. Well, we spent a long time on that verse 18, didn't we? Okay. Uh, After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things, and notice this, the things which God had done. Now, this is not rare to you guys. I think this is, yeah, that's the way it should be. The things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Sometimes there can be ministries... They'll say, look what he has done. Or look what I have done. Be leery of that because we don't really do anything uh, unless it's the power of God working through us. But look what God has done, which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And that's exactly the way that Paul is. You know, he started giving particulars and they're saying, oh, Paul, you're terrific. You're probably the number one missionary out there. You're the best. You're the number one. We give you a plaque for being a missionary. <laughs> uh, no, they didn't do that. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord. Right? Verse 20. When they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to Him... And then, of course, now they they <laughs> got to bring the reality back in here. But um, every time He gave a report, it's always the same thing. It was like he'd come back from his first journey, his first journey, listened to his report. They'd come together, gathered the church together, reviewed all that God had done with them after his first journey. All that God had done. Isn't that good? Here's what God did with all the Gentiles. It's giving God all the glory, of course. Um, Look in chapter 15, verse 12.
<laughs> All the people kept silent. This was at the Jerusalem Council back a few years ago. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. What God is always that way. That's the way Paul is always going to do it. That's the way that uh, any uh, missionary of God will do. It's uh, all that God has done. It's all for His glory. And people hear it, they glorify the Lord. Look, you'll never believe this. You know what God did? <laughs> you won't believe what God did here. It's always God. Of course. It's nothing else. Ephesians 3. Um, it says, I pray that you be filled of the fullness of God, and then you exceeding of all you can ask or think according to the power that works in us. God's power that works in us. All right? So... Everything. It's always qualified what God does. That in the church, God may be what? Glorified. Always a glory to God. The mind of Christ, all glory to God. Okay, now, those Jewish Christians, they're really concerned. They know there's going to be a problem. It's going to be a real problem. And they've already figured it out what they're going to have to do. There's been riots everywhere he goes anyway, right? Ephesus, remember that? Other places. That was in Gentile cities. The Jews hate him even more than the Gentiles did. Everybody wants to kill him. They had a really sweet time of sharing communion together uh, these Jewish leaders these elders James but they're a little uptight and there's a problem hanging over their necks and we have a lot of Jewish Christians here that still follow the ceremonies they still follow the law of circumcision they're still Moses is their hero they're Christians. And I know that somebody could say, well, how could you be a Christian and be a zealot of the law? Uh, that's what it says here in verse 20. Uh, here's their concern. You see, brother, okay, uh, how many thousands there are among, among the Jews here? And we're talking Christian Jews. Of those who have believed, right? That qualifies that. And they're all zealous for the law. And we're talking about Moses' law. Now, the law sometimes can mean God's Word. Here we're talking about the Mosaic Law. And and not that they're not Christians here, but uh, not the law in terms of salvation, but in the terms of ceremony. Um, they're hung up on the Passover. And they're hung up on Pentecost. And they're still keeping the Sabbath as well as meeting on uh, the first day of the week too. They're still watching what they ate. Uh, they're still watching what they wore. And they were going through their routine. So the point is that the Jews there who believed, 
They were saved people. They were Christian people. But they were never shaken totally from the framework of Judaism. And that presents a problem. Um, There's a difficult transition to make. Paul doesn't have a problem with it. He knows full well. Of course, he wrote the book of Galatians. But he wrote Galatians to Gentiles. And there were Judaizers around. But we're talking about these people are ones who are not necessarily Judaizers, but they're, they're keeping those days that they grew up with and, and uh, certain things that they did, and they kept doing that. And it's like, yeah, traditions. And why didn't they drop all that stuff? They became Christians. Well, we know that uh, when Christ died, what happened in the temple as far as the veil is concerned? Ripped open. We don't need that temple anymore. Right? But they're still going to temple. Why didn't they, they drop those features? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons. I'll just hit on a couple. Keep it simple. Those things were ordained by God. God gave those things. Where Are they in themselves evil? No. God gave them. Well, that was to them. That was associated with God. And, of course, that's the way they looked at it. This is the same God who gave us the Messiah. They believe in Jesus as Messiah. The historical Jesus. Jesus who was crucified. They actually believe in Him. They trust in Him for His sacrifice. They don't need any more sacrifices to cover them. Uh, their sins. And they know they know that well. Um, but the same God who gave us Messiah gave us all these things that we do. They haven't worked through that. Or maybe they are working through it. Uh, another one is the leaders of the Jerusalem church at no time ever, really ever came out violently against the forms of Judaism. We're talking about the leaders like James and all the other ones that would be absolute true Christians. They would be teaching the Word of God and they would be watching out for legalism. We know that Jesus spoke out against um, the Judaism of their day, the, the outward form. And uh, these Christians aren't necessarily seeing it as an outward thing. Some are still working on it. But at the Council of Jerusalem, we do know what they decided on, uh, that the circumcision and all that stuff wasn't necessary. But they decided that was in reference to the Gentiles. So, okay, the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. The Judaizers wanted to get the Gentiles circumcised. That's a problem because that's part of salvation is what they taught. That's a major problem. And the Jerusalem elders there would have taught uh, definitely against against that kind of thinking. Um, but the Christian Jewish people are still doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're still, they still circumcised. Um, is that wrong? What, what about God? What does God think about this? Did, did God care? Well, um, I think when you look at 70 A.D., it gives us a pretty good view, ultimately, of what God's going to do with it. Um, He's going to do away with that uh, temple worship and everything they depended upon and the sacrifices. I'm not saying Jewish Christians were were, uh, seeing the sacrifices as their sacrifice. They had to be taught that Jesus is the sacrifice. He's the completion of that. But a lot of the other rituals are... 
uh, still they're, they're dealing with. But 70 A.D. got rid of all of Jewish ceremony because now there was no place to uh, to go and to, to do those things. And we know that thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews uh, were were killed at that time and destroyed all over the, that area. And so God destroyed Judaism in one shot. Um, and of course, when you look at the book of Hebrews, if you had people that were what I would call walking the fence, they weren't. There were some of them that were not Christians, and the the writer is saying, "I beg of you, come on over all the way into Christianity." I think in this case, that's not necessarily these people, but there are some walking the line, and they haven't fully given themselves over to 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 Christ in that sense. And uh, Hebrews says, drop the old and come to the new, though. I think it makes it very clear. Uh, all that Old Testament stuff, it's been now fulfilled. Uh, ceremonies, rituals, and on and on. And that was within a couple of years. Uh, Hebrews, if it was written in 68, and two years later, 70 A.D. happened. And uh, I'm sure that uh, they're seeing that that whole system got whacked. So, you know, God is, is patient, and, and at the same time, uh, as long as their faith was in Christ, all those activities they did, they were rather, I guess you could say, inconsequential in a lot of senses. There weren't any more sacrifices uh, for them. They understood that. But they're hanging on. They're just kind of hanging on with that stuff. And so we see that he says in 20, You see, brother, how many thousands are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law. That's one thing. They have been told about you. Now, that means you have Judaizers that come along and they start telling lies about Paul and his ministry. Here's what they have been catechized on constantly. Here's what they teach about Paul that he is against Moses' law. And it says here that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. They're going around saying that Paul said to forsake Moses. That's an absolute lie. Never did Paul ever say that, did he? He never said to... They're telling that, yeah. Uh, these these Christian Jews in Jerusalem are being told by Jewish people or that are just maybe disguising themselves as Christians, but they're Judaizers, and so they start telling about what Paul believed. Right, but do the Judaizers believe that themselves, or do they know better? They make up the story because okay. they have no reason. There's no solid evidence whatsoever that Paul ever even did that. Now, we know that he's saying that the, the law of Moses, as far as that um, the religious uh, outward things, is not about what Christianity is. You know. But he never spoke against Moses in that, in that sense. But, um, that reminds me of my mom. She thought we hated Mary because we wouldn't, we wouldn't put roses to her or something like that. She had a long hang-up like that that we didn't believe in Mary. 
in a second. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was like once she came in the house, we had the tibia. She goes, well, I thought you didn't believe in Mary. I said, well, I don't believe in Mary the way you think Mary works, but yeah. You know, that yeah. She, I guess she, for some reason, had got the impression that we were against, Mary didn't have anything to do with Jesus' birth or something like that. Yeah. But the same type things like that. Like they're making things that aren't so. Trying to make something up that you right. did not say. And so now you have you can get some big points in on that with the people, and they go, oh, it doesn't believe in in Moses. He, he forsakes Moses. Uh, yeah. You know, there's always wondered about what you're teaching. There's always been this nagging doubt in my mind when I read that that the Christian brothers, the council, were kind of urging Paul. To appease this group, it's kind of the flavor, and we know it's not right. But let's not stir them up and cause all this trouble. Just go do this and this and this, and it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work, and I've always wondered what, what are they doing here. But you know, even Paul was not perfect. He wasn't perfect. Right. Well, that's what some people say. And then others say, well, no, wait a minute. And I think it's definitely worth looking into. I think it's, yeah. It, oh, I've always had the same thought, too. And I, sometimes I'm not certainly um, 100% sure. But whenever you take into consideration some of the things that Paul had done, then you look at the scripture in First Corinthians nine. I'll get to that in a moment, maybe. Okay. But no, that that's what's so exciting about this this text. And you try to put your place there with this, and then you, you're running through all these scriptures, and you think of Galatians, especially when we spent all that time in Galatians. And but remember, who was he writing to in Galatians? Oh, yeah, that's right. He he never would ever said that the Gentiles need the circumcision to come into Christianity. There is dealing with salvation and Gentiles. Is it okay for the Jews to continue circumcising? Yeah, but what what is it anymore spiritually? You know, but it, it but see that's a great question. I'm sure everybody is here probably thinking what's going on here. What happened to Paul? These guys seem and there is a I'll tell you what there is the word compromise here. I think we can use that. And usually when you hear compromise, you think of negative things. But let's see. huh? But it doesn't have to be. So it's good to kind of consider, okay, what's Paul doing? And you're right. Paul is human and Paul can make mistakes. And he did. <laughs> so that, and that's what's tricky about this passage. Because I saw commentaries where, um, one, I thought, man, he had some really good points. and Because and I've seen them too, and I've always thought, well, that could be that. You know, I, I, but this guy over here, he's got this, and he says, no, it's not a mistake. And see another guy, and it's divided right down the middle. <laughs> the church. That's what's, that's, but it doesn't divide us. But I think it's rather interesting. And we'll probably know one of these days what it is. But I think there are some good points here for Paul. Um, because um, we know that these people definitely were so catechized and so told how Paul had been lying. Um, but they're lying. Or, 
you know, where he's teaching all the Jews among Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children. Did he, do we ever see where Paul tells Jews not to circumcise their children? We never see that. Now he tells the Gentiles, okay, if you want to circumcise, fine, but that doesn't have anything to do with salvation. That's, that's what the Judaizers so much. You can't be a Christian unless you do that. Now we've got into a works. But if you want to do it and you're already, but you're not doing it for salvation. Matter of fact, physically, it was a good thing to do. <laughs> that did mark God's people. It was ordained by God to do. So therefore, is there anything really wrong with that? Well, on Paul's side of this, I kind of reason that he apparently was comfortable with their suggestion. He did that in faith. Or I don't believe he would have done it because he right. was so uncompromising and so stark to stand exactly. for whatever God has said that he would have done this if he thought this was Yeah. Wrong. And I don't see it as sin, but I just always question kind of was he was it wisdom? Yeah, was it wisdom? Did it, did did he make a mistake here? And I think that's what a lot of them usually say. They ask the question. And that's the question that we're gonna we're we're gonna try to ask here. It, and that's a good point. How many times have you read this passage? You go, this is this is so different than what Paul would say. Do and, and what they're doing. It, it looks like, hey, they're slipping this underneath. Hey, I'll tell, tell you what. Uh, let's do this. Let's just make them happy. Uh, Carolyn and I had that happen, or Carolyn did, whenever we were going to get married, and she was in the Catholic Church, and I wasn't, and I really wasn't seeking the things of the Lord at the time. Okay, um, but. The, the priest knew that um, I really wasn't going to go along with raising the children Catholic. So he went to her privately, took her aside. Well, and he showed you no guitar. He brought something for you to check out in the other room. <laughs> yeah. And then he went over and talked to Carolyn privately and said... told me, well, sign this piece of paper saying that you agree to raise your kids Catholic. <laughs> this is marriage counseling. And I think it's how divisive can you be to sit there behind somebody's back and sign a piece of paper. And you said you weren't going to do it. And he said, well, it's okay. Go ahead and do it anyway, whether you're going to do it or not. Just sign it. Now, I went around to, to to get to this point. Does it seem like that's what they're doing there? When at first reading it, it, it certainly seems like it, doesn't it? It seems like that's what um, the leaders of the, of the church here are, could be doing. Um, but you know, they're saying, okay, here, here's what these guys are doing. We don't believe this that Paul's you're doing this. But here's what they're saying out there: the Christian Jews here in Jerusalem are saying that uh, you've been telling not to circumcise the children, nor to walk according to the customs. And so what then is to be done? They're asking, okay, Paul, what, what, what else can be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. We, this is uncomfortable. We're glad you hear. We rejoice. We thank the Lord for all that He's done through you, and we believe what you're doing is right. We're right there. But what are we going to do now? Look out there. And we're talking about people who, who are believers What's what's to be done? They'll certainly hear you've come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. Now, Paul is an apostle. The other apostles aren't there. You have elders, James and the elders. 
I have to think that James is the one talking here, but the elders are backing up saying, okay, we've got an idea. Okay, and we want you to do this. You do this. They're telling an apostle to do this. The apostle is over an elder, right? Well, uh, in some cases, uh, but maybe not uh, here. Um, Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Okay? Take them, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses. Well, that's asking a lot. So that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you. See, they know that he's, he's not said these things. But, but they would see that there's something different here than what they've been hearing. But that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles, as far as they're concerned, we, we've already figured that out. We know that. And they go back and they repeat what's been said at the first church council. We wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrifice, that's one thing for sure, to idols, from blood and from what is strangled, from fornication. And it wasn't they have to be circumcised. They don't have to do their rituals. They don't have to do anything. It's by grace you're saved. But here's some things that we are saying that they don't be a part of. That would, And none of those things would have been good at all. You know, anyway. Uh, then Paul took the man the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days, the purification of the sacrifices offered to each one of them. So Paul goes along with it. Goes along with it. Um... We're not talking about salvation by law here. And, you know, of course, these guys are saying, hey, listen, they know you're, you're going to be in town. This is going to get around. Here's their life. Here's their tradition. Here's their culture. They're, they're Christians. Uh, and it's, it's around that you've apostatized, that you're a heretic. We know better than that. You're not an apostate. You're a man of God. Moses is sacred stuff. And, well, he should be. He should be. Lifted up in the sense, not not like God, but you know, look what how God used him. Paul never ever taught to forsake Moses. Uh, that uh, Gentiles had to become Jews. He never taught that. Um, matter of fact, he even had Timothy circumcised. You remember that back in Acts sixteen two and three. Why would he do that after he wrote the book of Galatians? Why would he do that? Because it put Timothy in a better situation when he'd go along with Paul or, T- or Timothy. Now, even he's like half Jew, so he can be. It's not that it's going to make him any better as far as a relationship with God. It's not going to save him. He's already saved. But why not use a thing that's not going to hurt you for something that that can enhance the gospel? People now will listen to you where they wouldn't before. It means nothing to you, Timothy. It's okay whether you are or not. But if you can reach other people and do something out where it really doesn't mean anything, either way, what's wrong with that? Right? And besides, Jews before this were always circumcised. So, okay. He's not talking... And salvation is a big issue here is, is what when, when we've seen before and other things where we know. But they called Paul a liar and we know that... Um, Timothy was circumcised. We know also that um, he took a Nazarite vow. Um, He wanted to do that. Uh, Sometimes people fast. Not like the Jewish uh, leaders did when Jesus bashed them. 
Yeah, to make them look like they're real spiritual. Um, now you say a Nazarite vow. That's what has been intriguing me is this vow Because I'm not sure what that means. Is it, 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 Go to uh, number six. No, there's a, there's a particular one. And of course we know that uh, uh, when you go back to, uh, oh, let's say, the Old Testament, numbers, number six, um, uh, Samson took a Nazarite vow, for instance. There's certain ones that, that have. It's it's a it's an oath to God, um, and in this sense, his heart is right. You know, it's, it's a spiritual sense. He's not doing it just as because this is Jewish, and not every Jewish person ever did this. Just a few would take this. It's, it, it puts one on a, in a a spiritual sense that they're they're consecrating themselves even more to God in, in an outward way. He would take his hair. And then when he got to Jerusalem, that would be part of the um, the, the sacrifice uh, as those days of the Nazarite vow would end, for instance. In this case, he's got some other ones that are all a part of this. Uh, in, your, in your number six, the Lord uh, again spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord... He shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He also shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. Nothing from the fruit of the vine. Um, they're not going they are separating themselves. Not in a you know, and that can be really, you know, legalistic in a sense, or in another way, it can really be true. Okay? And so they're separating themselves from no no chance to even get drunk or anything. They're keeping their mind clear, so therefore they're going to totally abstain from uh, during that time from the fruit of the vine. Uh, it's kind of a Jewish tradition. That's what I'm right, thinking. right, very much so. Right, and and it's, it only lasts so long. Like in verse four, it says, "All the days of his separation." He's separating himself to God. Totally a dedication thing. So it's a good thing. He's doing it. Um, we know that that can be dangerous because a lot of people can really prove their spirituality by the purity and consecration that they have. So was this, in Jerusalem, was this the completion of the vow? Well, we know earlier he was going to come to, uh, like uh, Passover and he didn't make it. There is, in, in this case, there is, um, with these four men, we know that there's going to be, he's going to pay for them, they're going to shave their heads, right? There's a seven-day purification, and then there's a sacrifice that's offered there. These four are, are part of this, this kind of a vow here. Um, so, you know, what that's going to do, it's going to prove that, okay, if these guys are already doing this, you can be a part of this, and it shows you that you're not against the customs. Okay, whether they're, whether they're good or whatever. 
Uh, look, if a Jew wants to observe the day in Romans, what does it say? If they want to observe a Sabbath on a particular day, that's okay. But if you don't want to observe the Sabbath or Sabbaths, it's okay too. Paul wrote Romans. Now, does this kind of help start clearing maybe that up a little bit? He says if they want to observe the Sabbath, let them. It's okay. Whatever was special and set apart for one guy may not be for another. A Jew doesn't want to eat a certain thing. Don't force him to. If they happen to be weak, and that's what, what, he's, what he's saying there, that for some it's a problem. For others it's, it's not a big deal. But uh, let's stoop to the weaker brother. Let's not offend him. So he knew what it was like both ways. Sometimes you have to condescend to the Jews. And, he, you know, he, he still is following some of the customs. But I think it's a way to be able to work himself in so that he can uh, he's not violating them, he's not forcing anybody. Um, and the elders know this is a potential bomb. Man, I mean, this is the biggest thing going. We don't have a circumcision thing going on in our day. We might have other things, but this thing could just blow up and go sky high. And he's, they're saying, we got tens of thousands of, of Jewish Christians here and they've been drilled that you are an apostate. And if you do this, this can help you have more favor. You're not an apostate and we know it, but they need to see this. Yeah. If this is not a big deal to you, you can do this. It, it, so compromise here is happening um, and they're telling... Um, this apostle what to do. Um, but and, and these guys are just setting themselves apart and no partying or anything like that. Uh, and another thing, Paul is paying the expenses. And I think that's another big issue. He doesn't have a lot of money, but he's going to pay the expenses. And this can be pretty expensive because we're, we're talking buying animals for sacrifices, which in Jerusalem can be pretty high. <laughs> He's got to go through all of that. And where did he get his money? Well, he has done the tent ministry. And I think he probably saved money back for especially certain issues like this. It's good to have a little bit of extra money if you can. Save a little bit. Whenever God calls you to do something, or it needs to be used, you will have it. So if at all possible, you can have that extra. So um, he was ready to do it. So they may shave their heads and know that those things which were drilled about was really nothing, and that that Paul actually walked orderly. And so if they want to see him do ceremonies to him, to do it was no big deal. To not do it is not a big deal. Uh, you show these people, uh, it, whatever they said wasn't true. And when the people see, he's going, he's still going to get in trouble because he goes in there and they're going to make up another lie that he's bringing in somebody else. Um, I don't think that he saw that it was absolute necessity. Um, but if he can win some people to the Lord, uh, look, Paul, we're not saying that everybody has to follow things, but you know we've already written what the deal is at the council and such. Um, I will tell you on the other side, uh, a guy by the name of um, G. Campbell Morgan um, said that this was a mistake and it was wrong. And I'll quote from him too. And this is a highly respected theologian. He's very good. He says, um, 
I hold that Paul made a, the greatest mistake of his ministry on this occasion. Yet we have to recognize that the reason of his consent was not that of expediency, not that of policy, but that of devotion and desire to win his brethren. But he's still saying, but he made his greatest mistake. But this was not the act of a man trying to save his own life. It was the action of a man who compassionately and earnestly desired to do anything to win his brethren. He sought by that compromise, contrary to his own conviction, to gain an opportunity. His brethren were not one. And the last word of the paragraph is the same cry hurled after him that hurled after his Messiah. Away with him. (laughs) Men who would never compromise in order to save their own lives are in danger of compromising in the hope that they help save others. So Morgan says that when he went against his own conscience and that he compromised by acquiescing to Judaism when he should not have done it, and it was an evil compromise. And the result... It didn't work out, and he was put in prison. Is that true? Well, I don't think he violated his compromise because um, his, his conscience, as he, there was a compromise. You read Acts 18, where it talks about the, the vow and um, you know the, the Judaistic days that they had coming up. And I think the Holy Spirit might have said something about this, uh, maybe not necessarily, but 1 Corinthians 9.19 gives the theology that Paul had on this, and I think this would definitely be something that came from the Holy Spirit, as it is Scripture. 9.19 For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. Now remember when this was written. This was written long before this thing in Jerusalem happened. A slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. What? (laughs) To those who are without law, Gentiles, as without law though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. There you go. So that I may become a fellow partaker of it. No, I don't need to do these things. But I I think... He humbled himself in going ahead and doing this, knowing that it wasn't innately anything wrong. It led to an arrest. But Paul always has already been told that this is what they're going to do to you. <laughs> so, I hope that gives us a couple different views. We we saw um, you can take what you like and still be confused about it. Or I think as you look at Scripture here, I I think I'm a little convinced that I don't think Paul made a mistake. I think that he's doing something that he has held to all along. Uh, but if he's going to Gentiles, he's certainly not going to do that. But if he's going to Gentile cities where there are Jews, then he'll have Timothy circumcised, which he didn't need to. Was that wrong? No, I think that was the right thing to do. Was it okay to go into the temple and do what he did here? I think so. So there we go. I gave my thought. Yeah. Be wise as you do this, though. And I, I think if, uh, you know, yeah, certainly he can make mistakes. And, and that could be, you know. G. Campbell Morgan, a good a good expositor there. 
don't you think we do this? Yeah. I know that as somebody talks about Catholicism, 